If you have your Bibles, please take them and turn with me to the Gospel of Luke. Luke chapter 5, if you are visiting with us, we have been in a series through Luke's Gospel here for several months, and uh, we come this morning to a passage that perhaps is, uh, seems a bit odd to you, uh, not something maybe you think about often, or maybe you've read it before and it has been confusing to you what Jesus is trying to say and to teach uh, those to whom he's speaking as well as to us. And so uh, my prayer is that God's word would uh, be uh, open up to us, that we would have light by the Holy Spirit to be able to understand it and to apply it in our lives. Hear God's word, reading verses 33 through 39. Luke writes, And they said to him, the disciples of John fast often and offer prayers, and so do the disciples of the Pharisees. But yours eat and drink. And Jesus said to them, Can you make wedding guests fast while the bridegroom is with them? The days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and then they will fast in those days. He also told them a parable. No one tears a piece from a new garment and puts it on an old garment. If he does, he will tear the new, and the piece from the new will not match the old. And no one puts new wine into old wineskins. If he does, the new wine will burst the skins, and it will be spilled, and the skins will be destroyed. But new wine must be put into fresh wineskins. No one, after drinking old wine, desires new. For he says, the old is good. This is God's word, the grass withers the flower fades, but the word of our God stands forever. Let's pray again and ask him to help us as we study his word. Father, we ask that your word, which is living and active, sharper than a two-edged sword, that it would discern the thoughts and the intentions, the motivations of our hearts. Lord, we pray that you would reveal to us the ways that we need to be instructed and corrected, rebuked, trained in righteousness. Lord, we pray for your grace and your spirit to come Teach us, show us wonderful things from your word. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. One day when our children were younger, I was walking by their bathroom and I heard that dreaded sound of a running toilet. Right? And you ask the kids, like, how long has this been making this noise? How long has this toilet been running? And they're like, I don't know. Like, how many gallons and gallons and toilets full of water has gone through my water meter, right? And so I went to the hardware store and uh, bought a, a new flapper, right? Because I'd looked down and realized, okay, the flapper's not seating well in the, in the bottom of the tank. And so I buy a new flapper. I come home, I put the new flapper on, and, and still it doesn't work. Like the flapper's not seating well. It doesn't fit the, the pipe. So it's, it's just not working the way it's supposed to work. A flapper, this little patch fix is not fixing it. So I go back to the hardware store and explain the situation. They're like, you know, I really think you need to, to buy like the whole flush valve, the whole like assembly of the pipe and the thing that sits down in the bottom of the tank. Well, to do that, uh, you, to replace that, you have to take the tank off of the bowl, right? Well, so I begin to take the tank off the bowl only to find out that the, the, the nuts and the bolts holding the tank to the bowl are rusted, right? Have to be removed with a hacksaw. And then finally you hacksaw them off, you get them off the bowl and you realize the, the little gasket between the tank and the bowl, that's rotten, right? So of course those things don't come with the flush valve. So you have to go back to the hardware store, right? And buy the flush valve and the nuts and the bolts and the washers, you come back home, finally, right? The toilet is not running, right? It's fixed. Right? But, but, but here's the, the point, here's where I tell you that story. The toilet was broken, right? But a patch job of just putting on a new flapper wasn't going to cut it. 
It wasn't going to do the trick, right? It, I wasn't able to combine the old part of the flush valve and the everything else there that lets the water leave the toilet. I wasn't able to combine those old parts with the new part. I couldn't just throw the new part in and, and fix it. Everything related to the water going down the drain had to be replaced. Now, the illustration would have been a lot better if the whole toilet would have been had to be replaced, right? But I think you get the point. Right? It, it, it highlights what Jesus is seeking to teach us here in this passage. When Jesus came into the world, it wasn't just to give us a quick fix. It wasn't just to, to do a patch job. It wasn't just as an add-on attachment to the rest of our, our life. But he came bringing something radically new. He brought regime change in the ultimate sense of that word. Now, yes, Luke has already shown us in his gospel that there is continuity between the old covenant and the new covenant. Right? Jesus is the fulfillment of all the promises made to Israel. And yet here we learn that in terms of the history of God's salvation and his redemption, his plan of, of salvation, and especially with regard to the Jewish practices in Jesus' day, Jesus and his kingdom could not be contained within the old structures of faith. And the same thing is true in terms of each one of us. In regard with Jesus' coming into our heart, dwelling in our lives, the gospel cannot be accommodated to our old ways of living and thinking. Jesus hasn't come to be fit into the mold of our old lives. It's so easy to want Jesus to be just a toilet flapper, right? Lord Jesus, I just want you to come and be a quick repair for, for all my pains and all my hurt, right? But I want to keep everything else about my life the same, right? I like my old life. I want you to come in, right, in this little area, but I, I don't want you to touch anything over here. Like this, I want you to keep just like it's always been, right? I want you to be sort of like a tire repair. Just come fix this nail hole. And Jesus says, no, 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 no. Like there's a gash in the sidewall of your tire. The, the, the tread is separated from your tire. Everything must be replaced. Our problem is so much bigger than we realize it is. And Jesus intends to bring something fundamentally life-altering in our hearts and in our lives. Now, now, this is the point that he's making here in this story and in these parables. And, and Luke wants to show us how Jesus has ushered in this radical transforming newness. And he's going to do that by pointing us to Jesus's practices by relating to us Jesus's parables, and then finally by pointing us forward to Jesus's promise. So Jesus's practices, his parables, and his promise is how I want us to, to look at this text together. First, look with me at Jesus's practices. Now, as you remember the story just before this one, Jesus and his disciples were accused of eating and drinking with tax collectors and sinners. Well, now they're attacked for eating and drinking. And they said to him, the disciples of John fast often and offer prayers, and so do the disciples of the Pharisees, but yours eat and drink. Now, it's possible that you are only familiar with, with fasting uh, as it is used as a, a tool of dieting, right? Intermittent fasting, a big thing in vogue these days, right? Or maybe you're familiar with, you know, big religious fasts like Lent or Ramadan. But Intentionally refraining from food and, and drink was a common spiritual practice in the lives of the Old Testament saints. Right? God had only commanded one fast in the Old Testament on the Day of Atonement. 
Right? That was the only one that he commanded to his people. But, but we see in the Old Testament uh, that individuals would voluntarily fast for the purpose of praying. You notice the connection of fasting and praying here in the text. They would, they would voluntarily refrain from food and drink for a, for a time, for a season, uh, in order to pursue the Lord in prayer. And we see this on numerous occasions. We see it when people are seeking God to deliver them or to protect them or to guide them or to accomplish something for them. You think of Esther about to go before the king of Persia, right, to make her request. There was fasting that happened before that. You remember Ezra as he was about to leave uh, Babylon and, and come back to Israel and they fasted for the Lord to protect them along the way. Uh, there were those sorts of fasts, but there was also, and really the majority of fasts, were fasting uh, in order uh, to mourn, right? Fasting that was associated with, with grieving over not only uh, national calamity, but even individual and personal sinfulness, right? You, you see David grieving uh, when Saul and, and, and Jonathan died and he fasted. Uh, you, you see uh, the Ninevites, when they repented of their sin, they fasted. Or uh, Nehemiah or, or Daniel, when, when he was confessing the sins of God's people, fasting. Right? God's people fasted in the Old Testament uh, in order to declare that, that God's help, God's forgiveness, God's grace was more important than food. Right? That, that they needed him, they needed his provision, his mercy, more than they needed their daily bread. But Though fasting was a, a valid and an integral part of, of spiritual life and spiritual devotion for the people of God before Jesus came, it was often, as we saw in Isaiah 58, it was often disingenuous. It was often hypocritical. It was often self-righteous and not connected with love of neighbor. After the return from exile, things weren't much better. Remember, Isaiah writes before the exile into Babylon. Well, in Zechariah chapter 7, listen to what he says by way of indictment. God says through Zechariah, When you fasted and mourned in the fifth month and in the seventh month for these 70 years, was it for me that you fasted? Right? And the answer implied is like, no, you were doing this for yourself. Right? You were doing it to, to make yourself feel better, make yourself look good, right? to, to somehow earn merit in my sight. And so when we come to this text, we have to remember that, that fasting was a commendable thing in the old covenant, though it was often an empty and external ritualistic, formalistic sort of thing. Well, by the time that Jesus comes into the world, it's been hardwired into Jewish religious practice. The Pharisees, as we'll read later in Luke 18, were in the habit of fasting twice a week, Mondays and Thursdays. This was one of their man-made uh, traditions that they had added to God's commands that Jesus uh, indicted them and castigated them for. Uh, they were likely the hypocrites, right, that Jesus refers to in the Sermon on the Mount, who put on a gloomy face when they fasted, disfiguring their appearance to be noticed by men. Oh, look how holy I am. Look how spiritual I am. Look how righteous I am and religious I am. I'm fasting. All right. John the baptizer is mentioned here. Uh, he, remember, is already in prison at this point, but his disciples were, were still there. And even though John had pointed them to Jesus as the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world as the bridegroom of whom he was just the best man, yet there were some of his disciples who were still not sure if Jesus was who John had said that he was. Right? And, and so they were still following John's ascetic practices. But here's Jesus. Jesus and his disciples are completely different. Yes, Jesus fasted in the wilderness, but he wasn't in the habit of fasting. 
He didn't do it regularly like all the other religious dudes. And he, he certainly didn't require his disciples to fast. And everybody noticed this. Everybody saw this. This is different, right? You're not teaching your disciples to fast and to pray the way that John and the Pharisees are teaching their disciples to fast and to pray. His practices were completely different from the other religious Jews of his day. And if Jesus' followers weren't fasting, so the logic went, then they probably weren't praying either. And what sort of a religious leader could he be if he's not teaching his disciples to fast and to pray? How could he be a teacher sent from God? Doesn't he know how we do things around here? And so the question comes, why do you and your disciples not fast and pray the way that the disciples of Pharisees and John do? Well, Jesus is not caught off guard by this question, is he? He answers them. And he answers them with a question. He says, can you make wedding guests fast while the bridegroom is with them? He's saying, don't you see that in my appearance, in my coming, the messianic age of joy of salvation has dawned. Everything has changed. Jesus is comparing himself to the groom at a wedding. The wedding reception is happening. The guests are with the groom. How can they be forced, commanded, required to fast, to mourn, to be sorrowful? How inappropriate this is. It would be like your groomsmen, your bridesmaids, handing you a sympathy card on the day of your wedding. It would be like you and your wife deciding, here's the song we're going to sing at our wedding. Whate'er my God ordains is right, though now this cup and drinking I may bitter seem to my faint heart, I take it all in shrieking. You're like, well, that's, that doesn't really fit right? a wedding. It's just not appropriate. It's not, not proper to sing that song at a wedding. Right? No, a wedding is a day of celebration, not sorrow. What need do the disciples have of, of seeking God for deliverance? And protection when God himself, their heavenly bridegroom, is there with them, is in their midst, is is in their presence. Fasting is not fitting, Jesus is saying. No celebration is called for. The mood is to be joyful, not somber. How absurd to think that the disciples should mourn while Jesus is healing and, and saving and forgiving sinners of their sin and their misery while he's speaking such beautiful words of life. See, by Jesus' lack of fasting and the disciples' temporary halting of fasting while he is there among them, he is showing visibly that a new day has arrived. A new regime is present. Everything has changed with the coming of the king. It reminds me of a story I once heard or maybe read about Sylvester Croom when he became the football coach at Mississippi State back in 2004. At one of his first team meetings, uh, a kid's cell phone went off. Had to be like a Nokia block, right? 2004, like no iPhones there until 2009. So the cell phone goes off and the kid answers it. He answers it in the team meeting. And Sylvester Croom says, I'm so glad this has happened. I'm so glad this happened, right? Here I am and your new head coach. I'm so glad that phone just rang because let it be known from this day forward, there will be no cell phones in team meetings, right? Everything is different now. There's a new coach. There's a new regime. There's a new administration. There is a new way of doing things. Everyone instantly knew that everything had been made new. And here's Jesus. He has come with with new and different practices. He ate and drank with sinners, with tax collectors, and with his disciples. And the religious establishment, the religious conservatives, 
didn't like it one bit. So here's Luke saying, look at Jesus's practices, all things being made new. But, but that leads us to the second point, to Jesus's parables. You see, this question about fasting gave Jesus an opportunity to state a fundamental principle about the new covenant in relation to the old. And he does it with, with these three parables, really two extended metaphors and a proverb. And in each one of these parables, Jesus is explaining that he has brought a new thing, not something to be added to the old ways in a piecemeal or patchwork fashion, but a whole new paradigm, a radically new way of thinking and living. And, and yes, don't, let's never forget that, that the new has grown out of the old, right? As we've seen throughout Luke's gospel. But, but here Jesus is driving home that point, but it's new. But it's new. He speaks of a new garment. First, right, he says, no one tears a piece from a new garment and puts it on an old garment. If he does, he'll tear the new and the piece from the new will not match the old. Jesus is saying, look, if you have a shirt that is, is ripped, that's torn, right, no one in the right mind would take another shirt that's brand new and cut a piece from it and, and put it onto the old shirt. Right? You've just destroyed a perfectly good new, brand new shirt. And the new and the old are not going to match in this garment. And, and as the other gospels uh, say that Jesus added on, right, the, the new hasn't shrunk yet. As soon as you, you know, wash it, it's going to tear and rip and everything is going to be destroyed all the more. So Jesus is saying here, you, you, you wouldn't do this. What you would do is you would buy a whole new shirt. Right? You would throw out the old and you would bring in the new. Well, he gives another parable, the parable of the new wine. He says, no one puts new wine into old wine skins. If he does, the new wine will burst the skins and it will be spilled and the skins will be destroyed. But new wine must be put into fresh wine skins. Now, Jesus knows more about fermentation probably than you do, right? And here he is saying that, that, that these wine skins that were made out of sheep skin or goat skin uh, that had been sewn together to hold wine, uh, after time, right, they grow brittle, they grow inelastic. And if you put in new wine into an old wineskin, new wine that hasn't yet been fermented, hasn't uh, yet uh, matured and aged, well, as it ages, right, as the gases fill that old wineskin, eventually right, it's going to burst. They're, they're, they're so brittle that, that they can't contain the, the, the new wine as it ferments. And eventually, if that happens, you lose both your wine and you lose the old skin. No, you have to put new wine, Jesus is saying, into new wineskin. See, with both these parables, what he's saying to us is, I brought something radically new. Right? I haven't brought something for you just to patch up a little tear. Right? You can't sort of mash together Jesus' gospel, Jesus' teaching with the old-time religion. No, the old cannot contain the, the living power, the freedom of the gospel. Now, as we look at these parables, we need to apply them, I think, in, in two different directions. First, we need to apply these parables in relation to Judaism of old, right? The, the Old Testament faith and particularly how it had been uh, uh, you know, disfigured by uh, the Jews living in Jesus's day. See, Jesus is speaking to these, to these Jews who, who looked at him as a radical, right? As a rebel. And in a sense, he was. He was because he wasn't fasting. He was feasting even with outcasts like sinners and tax collectors. He was claiming to be the bridegroom of God's people. He was claiming to be the one who had the authority to forgive sins and to cast out demons and to heal diseases and to tell people how to think about God's word. And through these parables, Jesus is saying to them, look, the gospel that I'm bringing 
It's not a little patch that you can sew onto your Judaism. No, the gospel is a new thing. Yes, yes, the, the new covenant is the fulfillment of all the former administrations of the one covenant of grace. The gospel grows out of the Jewish faith, but the old covenant cannot contain the new covenant. Jesus didn't come merely to reform the Jewish religion or, or to be a life hack that can sort of set everything right that was wrong with it. No, Jesus comes as something new, right? Not, not to be combined with, with any other religion, not even Judaism. Right? Jesus came declaring this radical break with the old faith. He came as a new garment. He came as new wine, as a whole new shoot out of the root. This not only applied to the commandments of men regarding mandatory fasting as the the Pharisees would have been practicing it. But eventually, as, as we'll see as the Bible unfolds, as the New Testament unfolds, eventually all of the God-ordained ceremonial laws regarding animal sacrifices, grain sacrifices, what you could eat and not eat, right? All the holy days beyond the, the Sabbath day, the creation ordinance in the fourth commandment, right? It, it, all of these things have been changed. And even the Sabbath day is going to be changed from the seventh day to the first day of the week because of the resurrection of Jesus from the dead. The old was on its way out. The new was on its way in. And Jesus is teaching those who are asking him this question. They're saying, I am bringing something new. It's new. And it cannot be fit into or patched onto the old. But there's another way to apply this, I think. And it's to our old individual lives. You see, often we want Jesus to just be a patch. Jesus, we just want you to be that toilet flapper that just can kind of boop, plop down and everything is better and the toilet stops running. But what Jesus calls us to, what Jesus says that he brings, what Jesus demands is complete and radical change. You can't just sow Jesus and his gospel into your old lifestyle. You can't take the parts of Christianity that you like, sort of pick and choose and, and sow them into your old life. There can be no syncretism. Right? What is syncretism? It's, it's a mixing of religious faith. It's saying, I'll take a little of this, a little of that, a little of that. Combine it all together in a big gumbo. No, you can't do that. Jesus doesn't allow for that. He brooks no rivals. He demands utter and total allegiance, a complete renovation of all the patterns of our life. Often we treat Jesus, don't we, like, like a spice. Hey, Jesus, I, I just want to add a little of you here, a little bit of you over there. Right, whenever life gets tasteless or painful, right, or drab or boring or stale or bland, no, we'll just use you over here. Right? A little bit of Jesus on top of all my activities, on top of all my academic and professional and, and personal life. But Jesus and his kingdom say, no, Jesus has come to change everything in our lives. Right? The way we look at our time, our money, the way we work, the way we play, our priorities, the way we can treat other people, right? the way that we Look at pleasure or pain, the way we approach our treasured beliefs that we've held for so long, the way we approach conventional wisdom, the way the world lives and acts and thinks around us, everything. Everything must be seen through new lenses because Jesus has brought something new. But there's a problem, isn't there? And Jesus mentions it in the last parable in verse 39. He says, yeah, but you see, here's the thing. No one after drinking old wine desires the new, do they? Because they say, the old's good. The old's good enough. 
The old's better. See, by nature, just like the majority of the Jews in Jesus' day when he appeared on earth, by nature, we're content as well with the old wine. We're content as well with old ways and old patterns of thinking and living. It's good. It's good enough for us, right? Why do we need anything new? Of course, Jesus is being a bit ironic here because old wine is better than new wine. But Jesus is saying, I am bringing something new that is far better, exceedingly better. And so the question that verse 39 confronts us is this, how can we keep on embracing the new ways that Jesus has brought, the new ways that Jesus is bringing? How can we fall and avoid falling into this trap of thinking that the old is good enough? Well, we have to see the last thing that Luke wants us to see, and that's Jesus's promise. Now, it's not very explicit in the text, but it's implied in an, in an explicit statement. You see, there's a statement here in this passage that's easy to pass over, yet it's vital that we hear it because it points us to this implicit promise that keeps us clinging to and longing for the newness that Jesus brings us. And you see it there in verse 35. Right? Just, just after Jesus has, has asked his rhetorical question about why would we make the wedding guests fest while the, the bridegroom is with them, he then says this, the days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and then they will fast in those days. See, Jesus here is explicitly foretelling his violent death. One day, he's saying, right? One day he knows that the Jewish leaders would not be able to tolerate his words any longer. And they would eventually kill him for challenging their old ways. Right? So here's this explicit statement of Jesus's death of being taken away but do you see that implicit in that statement? What's implied there, what Jesus is not saying out loud, but it's certainly there in the background, not just of this statement, but really of the entirety of the, the whole of redemptive history and, and the whole redemption story. If we, we know our Bibles, it's there, isn't it? And what is it? It's this promise that Jesus, who is our bridegroom, Jesus, who is the heavenly husband to his church who has loved his church with a deep and a tender affection, even to the point of giving himself up for his church on the cross. Who's willingly taken all of our debts upon himself and, and paid them fully. Jesus who allowed himself to be taken away and then who rose again in power, who took his life back, right? Conquering death, conquering sin, conquering the grave. Jesus who then left and ascended on high to, to sit at the right hand of his father in heaven, who even now as our heavenly bridegroom is praying for us, protecting us, providing for us in all our ways. Do you hear the promise? This bridegroom, Jesus Christ, is going to come back again one day. He who has left, who is now interceding for us in heaven, who's given to us his righteous name, who's given to us an inheritance, his inheritance, protecting us, providing for us. One day, our bridegroom will return to be with us forever. Because remember, why did he give himself up for us? Ephesians 5 says it, so that he might sanctify us, cleansing us through the washing of water with the word, that he might present to himself the church in all of her glory, 
having no spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that she would be holy and blameless on that last day when he returns. See, on that day, as Revelation 19 tells us, we will hear these glorious words, hallelujah, for the Lord our God, the Almighty reigns. Let us rejoice and be glad and give him the glory for what? The marriage of the Lamb has come and the bride has made herself ready. Blessed are all those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. See, one day, this glorious promise that's implied here in verse 35 is that Jesus Christ, our bridegroom, is coming again and he will make all things new. He's already made all things new, right? In principle, he's begun that good work in us. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 17, right? if we're in Christ, we're a new creation. The old is gone, the new has come. And yet, as we walk by faith in the promise revealed here in verse 35, the days will come when the bridegroom will be taken away from them. And yes, the days will also come when that bridegroom will come back to us. As we believe more and more in the fullness of the gospel of grace, then we will be able by God's grace to walk in the newness of life that he has obtained for us through his being taken away, through his death on the cross. We'll be able more and more to believe what Paul writes there in 2 Corinthians chapter 5. And here's, here's the sort of, sort of amazing, incredible thing, right, that we wouldn't necessarily think about. It's the second half of that verse. Jesus says, and what will they do when he's taken away? And then they will fast in those days. Now, this is, this is interesting, isn't it? It's, it's Jesus saying, look, because you will believe my promise, that I will one day return as that heavenly bridegroom. That then, as they wait, as my people wait in between the first and the second coming, then they will fast. Then they will fast. Not because you have to, out of any sort of strict obligation or requirement. Nowhere does the, 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 the New Testament right, command fasting as something that is obligatory upon the Christian. Right? But no, but, but because like the Old Testament saints, voluntarily you will want to. You will want to seek the Lord, your God, not in any sort of external scheduled ritual like Lent or Ramadan. No, not, not because, you know, you think that by it you can merit God's favor or, or, or somehow constrain or force his hand. No, but rather, according to the needs of the moment, in an ad hoc sort of fashion, right, without anyone but God knowing it. Isn't that what Jesus is saying to us in the Sermon on the Mount? No one should know that you're fasting except God. Right? You have your reward if everybody knows what you're doing, but God who sees in secret will see what you're doing in secret and will reward it. In between the first and the second comings, Jesus is saying, we will fast. As we wait for him to return, as we still walk in this life as justified sinners, still fighting against indwelling sin, struggling in this sin-soaked world, still needing guidance, still needing the forgiveness of our sins, right? we will fast. No, Again, fasting is something that we as Protestants really aren't very familiar with, are we, in the 21st century? But as we read the early church, we see the church fasting. Now, again, we, we don't see fasting as something that's commanded in the pastoral epistles as, or commanded or written of in, in any of Paul's letters. But as we see Jesus here saying, yes, when the bridegroom is taken away, then they will fast. As we long for our bridegroom to return, to make his forever home here on this earth. It is not inappropriate 
for you, the people of God, right, to give up food for some period of time. Maybe it's a meal, maybe it's a day, whatever it might be, not, not to lose weight, right? Not, not because you were running late or because you were uh, too busy working, didn't have time to eat, certainly not to merit anything before God, but in order to use the time that God has given you and the time that you would have been using to eat, right, to use it in certain situations as the Spirit leads you right, to seek God, to cry out to him for help, for strength, for guidance, for holiness, for forgiveness of sin. Every time your stomach grumbles when you're fasting, you are reminded of how desperately you need the Lord, how dependent you are on upon him. That, that man does not live by bread alone, as Jesus says when he fasted, but by every word that comes out of the mouth of God. As we fast in between the times, between the first and the second coming, we'll remember that a day is coming when Jesus will return, when our bridegroom will come again and make all things fully and finally new. But we know that that day is not yet. And fasting is something that is commended to us in the scripture to give us this physical reminder that things are not what they ought to be yet. And as we fast, we'll remember that God is renewing us after his image more and more every day. And so as I close, I just want to ask these questions. Are you content with your old life? Maybe you're someone here this morning who's not a believer, right? You have your own religious faith of some sort. Even if you say, I'm not religious, you have a faith, you believe something, you live according to some beliefs. And Jesus wants to come and shatter your old life, right? And bring his new truth, his new power, his new freedom into your heart. Will you accept and receive that new life that Jesus has brought and is bringing and will bring as the heavenly bridegroom of his church? And if you are his, and when you long for him to return, right, Jesus here is commending to us this spiritual discipline of fasting as a way to say, Lord, come quickly, come quickly, set things right. They are not right. I'm not everything I ought to be. Would you come and make me all that you have ordained for me to be? Brothers and sisters, Jesus is making all things new. Let's give him praise. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you, Lord, for this passage. We pray, Father, that you would give us grace to not treat your son like a patch, to not try to fit him into our lives. But Lord, would, would you come powerfully? And would you change us in every way? Would you renovate us and renew us? Lord, we pray that you would show us all the ways that we're trying to fit you into old wineskins, trying to sew you onto an old garment. Oh Lord, help us not to be like the Jews of old who were content with the old wine. Lord, we pray, even through something like fasting, that you would help us, Lord, to know that you have come to change us, to transform us by your truth and by your grace. Lord, come and and do it, would you please? Not because we deserve it, not because we've earned it or are worthy of it, but because we are desperate, hungry, needy, thirsty sinners, desiring you more and more, longing to desire you more and more. Lord, come, we pray, and do what only you can do by grace. In your name we ask it. Amen.